After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hey everybody, it's Raghu. I'm back with Mind Rolling, and uh, and I'm back with a very old friend, Danny Goldman. Danny, welcome. We haven't done this in a while. Raghu, it's so nice to do anything with you. I think we met uh, a long, maybe 50 years ago. Oh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, uh, Nainital at the Evelyn Hotel. Yes. That's and at, right. uh, at the nearby Kenchi Ashram. Yeah. Right. Good yeah. memory. Those were the days. Yeah. And then a fun thing happened that uh, after we both left India around the same time. Right. And uh, I, uh, we ended up at my father's farm, horse farm in Abercorn soon after and spent the summer trying to hold on for dear life to India. And we That's took out right. all his furniture and put it in the barn. And it was like we were, you know, on the floor, just like in India, yeah. uh, along with Mirabai Bush and, and uh, Krishna John Bush. And, and my first on, wife, on, Anasuya, Anasuya, yeah, who Anasuya. had at your father's farm in Quebec, Govinda, yeah. Govinda, yeah, my older if, son. If you can yeah, imagine. Yeah, that was a wonderful time. We had a baby. We had babies. Up yes. upstairs in my father's bedroom. <laughs> he didn't know what to think when he came back. Oh, God, those were such uh, wonderful times. So, uh, obviously, we, we're, we're going to talk today uh, about emotional intelligence and uh, mm. the book that uh, you wrote. It's 25 year, 25 year anniversary, right? Correct. And, yeah. Uh, uh, it, uh, if there's anything more important than having some of this information. I don't know what it is today, especially as the day after the election. <laughs> well, yeah, we can go into um, how emotional intelligence can help with yeah. handling patients, yeah. uh, managing stress, mm. uh, empathizing, especially with people who are different than yourself. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, those are all aspects of emotional intelligence. But let me tell you how it began for me. Okay. Because I see both our meeting in... India at that ashram and uh, writing emotional intelligence is having very similar roots. It started when I met Rondas, which was a little bit by surprise. I didn't. Really? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He had just come back from India and he was staying at his father's farm in New Hampshire. And I, it was, um, semester break of my first year at Harvard in clinical psychology. And I was in my apartment writing a paper about suicide. Uh, and, uh, there was a knock on the door and it was a very attractive woman who said she'd been in Nepal and she'd met a friend who gave me her address and a letter that he had written to me. and wasn't sure letters were getting through. And, um, she said she only had one other thing to do. She'd come back from Nepal because she was going to her sister's wedding. And by the time she got to New Hampshire, where she lived, her sister had canceled, backed out of the wedding. So there was me and there was this uh, other address somewhere in New Hampshire. We went up to this farm and it was snowy and there was a light on upstairs. We went up the stairs. We didn't know what it was or who was there. And there's this guy all in white with these 
is in a room plastered with uh, posters of Hindu deities. Mm. And I had no idea who he was. And he didn't open his eyes. His eyes were closed. He didn't say anything when he came in. And she sat down and closed her eyes. I'd never been in a situation like this socially. I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, he opened his eyes and he took out a sitar, or took up a sitar, started singing in a foreign language. I didn't understand. <laughs> and then after that, he greeted us. And uh, it turned out that he was Rondas. But he also admitted that he had been Richard Alpert. <laughs> it turned out that he and Leary, Tim Leary had been fired from the very same program I was enrolled in at Harvard. Mm. And so uh, being a member of the graduate student lecture committee, colloquium committee, I invited him back to Harvard to give a talk. And that was the first time he returned to Harvard after being fired. And then after that, I got to know him better and uh, ended up going to a summer camp at that very farm. Were you at that? Yeah, I, I was there. Uh, I so. Just uh, that what I was there, maybe, I think you were there in 69. Yes. You might have. And, and, and so, 70. And yeah. 70. So I was there in 70, we, uh, not yeah. 69. I met okay, him at the so, end of 69. Uh, so in 1970, I found out that my graduate school fellowship included a year of travel and study abroad. And I thought, well, I'll go to India. And so I went to India with uh, Rameshwadas and Krishnadas. And uh, we, we tracked down Ninkroli Baba, who actually had written, had said, when we Famous asked. letter. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, I think Krishnadas and Ramesh sent a letter to K.K. Shah, who was our contact, asking if we could come. And Maharaji, Ninkroli Baba, said, no, tell them not to come. <laughs> he was so uninterested in having Western devotees. And uh, KK put the response in a way that was so ambiguous that we just came anyway and showed up at the ashram and then people started coming, Westerners started coming. But it was because I was in clinical psychology and already enrolled in a psych program, uh, which I stayed with and got a doctorate, that I started to see that there was something in Eastern methods that we didn't know a thing about in Western psychology at the time. I mean, I did my dissertation at Harvard on meditation and stress, and there was like um, three articles in the psychological literature I could cite, really? only three, wow. on meditation. Two of them were like anecdotal mm. accounts of mm. one a Zen thing and another a, a yogi. And... Um, so at that time, you know, it, it was very radical to be interested in meditation. Uh, and then uh, it was so radical uh, that uh, after teaching a course at Harvard as a visiting lecturer on, psych- on consciousness, uh, I couldn't find a job anywhere in academic psychology. So I went to Psychology of the Day and right, ended yeah. up at the New York Times. Yeah, right. And it was be- at the New York Times that I started tracking the uh, science on emotions, which led me to write the book, Emotional Intelligence. Mm, yeah. Uh, but yeah. I had this other background in, you know, Eastern mm. methods and psychologies. What was your impression of Ram Dass, shooting back to the, the, the first time you met him and then spending time with him at the farm? And uh, I mean, for me, yeah. it, there was, it was a very uh, marked point in my life uh, and I always talk about the kind of trust that he engendered just from being so present and uh, and loving yeah he was definitely present and loving and more so (laughs) more so than my professors in psychology (laughs) at Harvard (laughs) who you know you could see them between two and five on a Tuesday for office hours that was like it and uh, he was really uh, full of shakti, full of energy, good energy. Mm. And it, it was ecumenical, it was contagious. Mm. And so, you know, being with him was a wonderful experience. Uh, and it was what got me interested actually in going to India and checking out more of this. 
you know, are there more people like this? Yeah. It turns out, yeah, yeah. that's mm. uh, one thing that, that uh, India did very well back in the day. Mm. Yeah. And so Ramdas was uh, a fabulous influence, I would say, on me, although he was um, kind of taboo in my department. They didn't really want to hear about it. <laughs> but for me, you know, the extracurricular knowing of someone who was so loving, so present, so Mm. high energy in a good way mm. uh, was the most compelling thing for me about psychology. Mm. Oh. Um, I'm just thinking uh, of something that I'll, I'll share it with you at some point, but uh, we've been going through, because Ramdas left on December 22nd. So we're making a little oh. film just showing he, his humor, his love and all of that f to just show it on that day, a short thing. So I've been going back through footage looking to see his relationships with all of the satsang and, and friends and so on. And you went there, I can't remember exactly, like 2006, 7, 8, something like that. I mean, you went more than once, but you went there and there the, you did a Skype thing with Ramdas that he, because we used to do these things where he, oh, yeah. he right. did these Skype sessions. And you, I, I went to Hawaii to yeah, see Yeah, went to Maui, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It might have been one of the first first couple of times that you went. Mm -hmm. The uh, I can't tell you how lovely you can see palpably the relationship between you and he and the love. Mm. It was just like pouring out. I thought, okay, <laughs> I got to use part of this. This this really is so really, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Well, we uh, RD and and uh, Tara, my uh, second wife. Uh, when when Tar and I got married, R.D. was our best man. Yeah, I remember. He, he and I, and actually Tar too, were all very, very close for many, many years. I'd say up to and beyond the stroke. And then once he moved to Maui, it became harder to see him because we lived on the East Coast. East Coast yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we did Skype. Once we had a Skype call with him where nothing was said for about an hour. No. I, no really? I don't think you can use that footage. No. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's so beautiful. we were just in some space. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And one of the things we love to talk about, I remember a conversation I had with him, maybe one of the last times I saw him in Maui. Uh, I got very involved in Tibetan practice, and I was talking to him about the notion, I am loving awareness. And we, I was telling him that that really equated in a beautiful way with something in Tibetan Buddhism, which is uh, emptiness. That's the eye. It's a different eye than the ego eye. It's an empty eye. Mm. Uh, um, and then the quality of pure being. And then bodhicitta, loving awareness. And awareness itself. And we just had a beautiful uh, talk about how these two different traditions are, seem to be talking about the same thing, but mm. in completely different frameworks. Mm. Mm. And as you know, Raghu, when you have those kind of conversations with RD, it was just a high. Mm. Yeah. 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 So all of that happened after I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, because I had this and still have this persona of someone who as uh, a science journalist, which has been the thing I've done for my professional career, mm. attracts research and uh, tries to translate it for people. And that was what I did in, in the book, Emotional Intelligence. Mm. Quite well, I would say beyond, uh, because I, I told everybody who's listening, I told Danny before we got on, I... I went back to it after I hadn't seen it in many years because it came out so long ago. And, you know, just for this conversation and, uh, oh, I'm, I mean, I started digging in because it was speaking to me mm. in a way that was so uh, beneficial considering mm. everything we're all going through this year, 2020, mm. uh, which is some very tough times for most of us. And, uh, uh, and I thought of this, Danny, uh, when I asked you to do this uh, weeks ago, I just thought this would be so entirely helpful mm. for so many of us to mm. really get a handle on, on uh, uh, the efficacy of understanding emotional intelligence. 
which is seemingly quite absent in in many <laughs> of our brothers and sisters out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the first part of emotional intelligence is very germane, very relevant mm. these days, uh, in these years, maybe. And that is how to manage yourself well, how to, how to be aware of what your thoughts are and how they're driving you and what your feelings are. Mm. And then using that to manage your distressing and disruptive emotions so that you can stay calm and clear. And then the point of staying calm and clear, so you can be kind, which has to do with the third part, empathy. Mm. Uh, and tuning into other people, being present for other people and what they need. And then putting that all together for skillful interactions. Yeah. That basically is the model of emotional intelligence. I've updated it since writing the book, Emotional Intelligence. And in the introduction uh, to the 25th edition, I, I give the... Uh, kind of re more refined thinking about it, which hmm. if anyone is interested, they can uh, get primers on my model at keystepmedia.com. So online. Hmm. And, and by the way, everything as usual, we will be putting links in the show notes to all of this. No and problem. not to mention also um, is a, a, a book that you, the last time we did a podcast was around altered traits Right, uh, an ex exceptional book with your friend uh, Richie Davidson. Uh, really loved that book. Actually, that that had hmm. some marvelous uh, insights. Well, Altered Traits is a kind of revenge book, actually. Oh, really? Richie, That's that. <laughs> Richie and I were the only. Uh, he was a graduate student with me at Harvard. And we were the only people interested in doing a study of meditation, and our faculty thought that was a terrible idea. In fact, he was told it would be career-ending for really? him. Yeah, really. Uh, it was a very psychoanalytic department at the time, and they were traumatized by Leary and Alpert. And so anything had to do with consciousness, forget about it. But we went ahead anyway. And uh, Richie was smart. He did his, his uh, work, his research in such a way that he seemed to be uh, showing that you could use EEG to monitor attention, mm. which had never been done before. Uh, but he was looking at how meditation training changed, shifted attention abilities. Mm. And then um, he became a very world-famous neuroscientist. He's at the University of Wisconsin. He has a huge brain lab and 100 people working for him. Uh, and I went off to become a science journalist. So we got back together after all those years and looked at the research on meditation, which now is like 6,000-plus mm. articles. Really? Uh, in peer review journal, right. we picked about the top 60, maybe the best 1%, hmm. and reviewed that. And it shows there's a dose response relationship. By the way, this is something that, you know, Goenka, our teachers in India, yeah. in meditation, could have told us years ago the more <laughs> you do, the, the better the effect. Yeah. And, um, you know, it makes people more calm, helps them pay more attention, they're kinder. And then, you know, Olympic level, the, uh, yogis, the industrial strength meditators who devote their life to it, have brain patterns that actually have never seen before in normal people, mm. uh, which we don't even know what it means. Yeah, that it shows yeah. that something, there's a there there. Yeah, yeah. That, those experiments with, uh, in particular, uh, Mingjur Rinpoche uh, are just phenomenal, what, what happened with him in particular. The natural, well, example, how he fell in, you know, just yeah. manifest compassion. Whoop, yep. <laughs> well, all of, each of those, there were 14 yogis brought over one by one and he did brain scans and he had them do um, uh, a format where they would, you know, do a focus meditation like concentration, then a visualization, and then uh, compassion. And he'd have them do it like, uh, okay, 60 seconds on, 30 seconds off, 60 mm. seconds on, 30 seconds off. Mm. I don't know about you or anyone out there, but if you meditate, it takes a little while for your mind to settle. These pros, complete control. They, you could see it in their uh, brain scans. They'd instantly get into the state. It's extraordinary. And when uh, Mingyur Rinpoche did compassion meditation, uh, the circuitry for compassion, which includes dopamine circuitry for good feeling, 
uh, it increased by seven to eight hundred percent, which has never been seen before. Uh, it voluntarily mm. changing that of the brain that way. So he's, he was really extraordinary. Yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to read a little something from Emotional Intelligence. It uh, sure. sets off the chapter called Know Thyself, mm. which has got to be integral to anything being able to happen <laughs> at all right. regarding. Um, it's it's a story that you, I just love this story. So since I have the book and you don't, I'm going to yeah, read go it. Sure. <laughs> a belligerent samurai, an old Japanese tale goes, once challenged a Zen master to explain the concept of heaven and hell. But the monk replied with scorn, you're nothing but a lout. I can't waste my time with the likes of you. His very honor attacked. The samurai flew into a rage. And pulling his sword from its scabbard, yell, I could kill you for your impertinence. That, the monk calmly replied, is hell. Startled at seeing the truth in what the master pointed out about the fury that had him in its grip, the samurai calmed down, sheathed his sword, and bowed, thanking the monk for the insight. And that, said the monk, is heaven. (laughs) The sudden awakening of the samurai to his own agitated state illustrates the crucial difference between being caught up in a feeling and becoming aware that you are being swept away by it. Socrates' injunction, know thyself, speaks to this keystone of emotional intelligence, awareness of one's own feelings as they occur, which has got to be, I mean, the rudder for this, the whole yeah. concept. That's the basis of it all. It's interesting, self-awareness turns out to be the critical part. There's self-awareness, self-management, empathy, and social skill. Those are the four main parts of emotional intelligence. Self-awareness is the least visible, but the most important. Uh, if you don't have a foundation self-awareness, you can't really manage your feelings because you don't know what they are as they're sweeping you away. Uh, you can't empathize, it turns out, if you're tuned out of a range of your own feeling. So it all starts with that self-awareness. Uh, simply being present to our own inner reality, our own feelings, heaven, our own heaven and our own hell. Yeah. yeah. And just in terms of advice for everyone listening, how to get to that place where we cultivate. Sure. Well, I think, for example, mindfulness meditation is a good training method because it is... Uh, a practice where you simply tune into your own thoughts and your own feelings without judging them, without trying to interfere. Uh, but as it turns out, if you can watch your own heaven and your own hell float by, the very act of watching uh, tends to allow you to let go of it. And then there's some practices of mindfulness where you name it. Oh, there's anger. It turns out from a brain point of view that if you can say to, to yourself, oh, I'm, there's anger when you're angry, it shifts the energy from the circuits in the brain that make you angry to a part of the brain called the uh, cortex, which names it, uh, which begins to take energy away from the anger. So it allows you to let go of it more easily. Mm. I think mindfulness is a really yeah. good method yeah. for that. Yeah. yeah, necessary, I would say. Um, the other, uh, one important part of the book, uh, and you say this very clearly, is around education. And uh, the causes and conditions that happen to us when we are children contribute mm. wildly <laughs> to what it is that we are dealing with as uh, as adults and uh, and and you talk about how uh, boys and girls are taught very different lessons about handling uh, emotions Um, and i found some of this fascinating what did you say parents in general discuss emotions with the exception of anger more than more with the daughters than with the sons Right, girls are exposed exposed to more information about emotions than are boys, and when parents make up stories to tell their preschool children, they use more emotion words when talking to daughters than to sons. 
when mothers play with their infants, they display a wider range of emotions to daughters than to sons. This is intense stuff. When mothers talk to daughters about feelings, they discuss in more detail the emotional state itself than they do with sons. Look, what chance do we have, us guys here? <laughs> Nothing. Though with the sons, they go into more detail about causes and consequences of emotions like anger. Probably is a cautionary tale. Gee, this is, um, I mean, I feel a direct connection mm. to personally what happened to me. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was uh, a child, and of course, since you know both my parents, <laughs> you can kind of look into that clearly. Oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, but I think that's a universal story, yeah. uh, at yeah. least in Western culture, where uh, girls grow up learning more about relationships and about emotions, and talking about it much more, by the way, uh, with their friends, with parents. But as you, as this passage points out, and it's based on research findings, uh, it starts in early childhood. It starts when kids are very, very young and continues through uh, adolescence. And, and then once, you know, you know, I think this is why when women get together, they talk more about relationships and feelings than men do, because they've been primed for that. Mm -hmm. They have a, a much thicker web. There's another element here uh, I'd like to speak to, though, which is uh, emotional patterning. Mm. You know, things like fear of abandonment or uh, feeling emotional deprivation. Nobody really empathizes with me, which both boys and girls, men and women may have an equal part. It's a kind of idiosyncratic patterning that happens starting in childhood that you carry into your adult relationships. And I, I'll recommend a book by my wife, Tara Bennett-Goleman, Emotional Alchemy, hmm. which talks about this patterning and what you can do about it. Uh, it's, it's the first book that really integrated mindfulness with what's called cognitive therapy, hmm. which is now a very hot integration uh, in psychotherapy. But it's a way of looking at what's going on in you, hmm. what triggers you, what your prevalent triggers are, why do I keep having the same thing happen? Emotionally, over and over. Why do my relationships end in the same way over and over? Mm, mm. Uh, and those are the patterns. And then what you can do about it, uh, which is for one thing, this is rather radical. You don't have to believe your thoughts. Uh -oh. Those patterns <laughs> That's are. Right. I forgot. Yes, yeah. think about that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, those patterns are kept in place by what we tell ourselves. Mm. And uh, one of the first steps is to notice those repetitive thoughts and the feelings that they generate in you. Mm. Uh, and uh, cognitive therapy and mindfulness turn out to be very powerful tools for doing anything about it. Yeah. And isn't this with, uh, of course, Richie Davidson, and, and I think you've been involved too uh, around neuroscience, and uh, the reality is that you can change these patterns. You can. Uh, with Richie, we were looking at how meditation changes you. Mm hmm uh, and the key idea here is called neuroplasticity. Yeah, right. It's the idea that the brain changes with repeated experience. So, you know, when you learn a new sport like golf uh, and you, you perfect your golf swing, that's neuroplasticity in action. When you look at these emotional patterns and try to do something different, and you do it over and over, that's neuroplasticity in action too. And it turns out meditation has a kind of general uh, neuroplastic effect. It changes the brain in uh, systematic ways and, and that are very beneficial in terms of, you know, how you feel and how you, how present you are to other people. Mm, yeah. Um, another thing that caught my eye that I thought would be good to highlight uh, is a chapter that's called Plumbing the Unconscious because... Mm that is definitively important in terms of awareness and mindfulness, mm. our motivations, our self-interest, all of it. And you say at some point, uh, some of us are, uh, are naturally more attuned to the emotional mind's special symbolic modes, met modes, metaphor, and simile, along with poetry, song, and fable, are all cast in the language of the heart. Mm. 
So that mm. leads us into a, another place behind you know, the intellect and the believing in the thoughts yeah. and so on. I think a very Im important place. Yeah, it's kind of an intuitive knowing. Uh, there are many ways to know. One of them is science. That's, that's you know, I, I base my books mostly on that. But in terms of the heart, knowing with the heart, we're talking about a more immediate, maybe hard to put in words, knowing, uh, which is you know, very, very powerful. It's how I knew, for example, I wanted to go to India. Yeah. I had to put it in words, but actually it was, I felt my heart being pulled to uh, not just by Rondas, but hey, how did he get like that? You know, what, what's going on over there? Yeah. It would say with I me, I want that. I can I check it that. out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, and it's that kind of knowing. Yeah. And doesn't, uh, speaking of Ramdas, uh, he certainly exemplified that um, trust in the heart. Yes. Um, I, uh, and that's my, I say this over and over in podcasts or, or whatever other work. I'm doing with people, trust is a big, big deal. And I had that with Ramdas. Actually, I was on stage, I've told this before too, with Ramdas once, and I was talking about meeting him and that complete connectivity where mm. there was no Richard Alpert, there was no Ramdas. He dropped it all, all the persona, in order to just embrace me vibrationally with those beautiful blue eyes of his. Mm -hmm. And it was an outstanding moment. And I said, so Ramdas, you are my first real trust. Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, what do you trust? What was your first trust? Oh, he went, mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and that was right. real. That was real for yeah. him. And that led, yeah. you know, so the intuitive uh, intuition yeah, speak to sure. intuition, because I think that that's really uh, important. Well, so let me speak to mushrooms first. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, because, you know, uh, Richard Alpert was famous for going around with Tim Leary and telling people to try psychedelics, which was this other way of, you know, immediate access to this other way of knowing. What I was intrigued by was uh, the understanding that I think I got from him that after the chemical cleared your body, you're the same schmuck you were before you started. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know? And that there was another way to get a more, be a, mm -hmm. have a more lasting transformation. Mm. And uh, because he generated a lot of trust, I trusted him about that. And I think that was um, what got me to go to India. And, you know, and uh, Nimkroli Baba was beyond. <laughs> you know the the notion of trust. It was just immediate yeah. Yeah. being in the presence, um, as you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and that's... so it's it's all intuitive. All that kind of knowing. It's like falling in love. It's intuitive. Who who do you love? Who's your lover going to be? It's someone that you have that immediate intuitive feeling for. Uh, you don't question it. You can't rationalize it. You can try. And it's the same, I think, in spiritual life. That, and in fact, it's interesting to me that uh, a lot of spiritual traditions use the language of love, of devotion. Mm -hmm. You know, talk about the beloved. Yeah, Rumi and Prophet. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And also in uh, bhakti, Hindu bhakti, um, it turns out that that kind of uh, devotion or love for the teacher uh, is uh, found in Buddhism too, and many other religions, I think. Yeah. Well, particularly Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, yeah. Uh, trust and intuition are two very important things, I would think, in terms of cultivating emotional intelligence. Well, I, I would say that uh, maybe works the other way. That uh, the more emotionally intelligent you are, the, the, more, the more you're connected. People trust you, and mm. the more you trust, mm. uh, and the more intuitive you can become. There's a lot of really powerful data. There's not to get too geeky here, but 
uh, that shows that uh, we know unconsciously before we know consciously. Mm. Mm. Uh, some very sophisticated studies. Mm. There's a uh, neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio who's written about this, how we, we have a hunch, intuitive hunch, which actually is correct before we understand rationally uh, what it is we know. So, uh, you know, an intuition seems to lie at the core of knowing itself, whether mm. we rationalize it or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, gee, maybe uh, I don't think we've contextualized exactly what it is when you speak to emotional intelligence. What are these qualities that... Uh, well, okay, so emotional intelligence is just a different way of being smart. It, it, mm. The phrase itself sounds like an oxymoron, like you can't be both emotional and intelligent, but actually what it means is you're intelligent about emotion. And uh, as I've said, there are four parts. There's self-awareness, there's self-management, there's knowing what other people are feeling, empathy, without their telling you in words, because they, they don't tell you in words, they tell you in facial expression, yeah. tone of voice, nonverbal cues. And then putting that all together to have effective relationships. So, but it starts with that self-awareness. And emotional intelligence, um, actually the book, was basically an argument for teaching this to kids. Yeah, that's uh, what I mentioned because, before, yeah. Yeah, uh, because um, it was a radical idea 25 years ago to have the curriculum include lessons in knowing yourself, and empathy and getting along with other kids and managing your emotions. But now it's a big movement. It's called social emotional learning. Hmm. And it incorporates all four parts of emotional intelligence. But it does it in a way where it uh, not only covers the spectrum from self awareness to relationship skills, but does it in an age appropriate way. So that, for example, for, I'll tell you a story about a five year old. This is a kid who on a snowy day in New England wanted to go out and play. And his mom says, sure, but you have to put on your snowsuit. And he immediately has this huge tantrum. He melts down. No, I won't put on my snowsuit. Crying and yelling on the floor. And then all of a sudden he stops, without saying a word, goes to his room, stays in there a while, comes out with, with his snowsuit on, and is about to go out. His mom says, hey, what just happened? He says, well, my guard dog got upset, so I had my wise owl talk to it. <laughs> That's something he learned in social emotional learning. And he oh. learned about the wise owl, which is a way of talking about the prefrontal cortex to a five-year-old kid. Prefrontal cortex is where we comprehend, we make good decisions, we learn. Uh, and the guard dog, which is the amygdala, which is the emotional circuit's radar for threat, and that's what triggers us. That's what sets us off. Mm. So the lessons can start very, very young. They just have to be age appropriate. I went to a class of seven-year-olds, and they were doing mindfulness. They didn't call it mindfulness. They called it belly breathing. Hmm. One by one, they got their favorite stuffed animal. They found a place to lie down on the floor. They put the animal on their belly, and they watched it rise on the in-breath and fall on the out-breath and rise on the in-breath. Hmm. You know, that's basic lesson in focus and attention and concentration you know, or mindfulness, if you want to call it that. And the, the research shows that it makes kids more concentrated, better able to manage their disruptive emotions, because the same circuitry does both things. And uh, it also makes them, uh, helps them make better decisions, which is the fifth goal of social emotional learning. So emotional intelligence, um, was both a review of the science to date at that point about emotions and an argument for helping kids know this. I mean, you talk about how girls learn more about relationships than boys, but social emotional learning kind of levels the playing field because, you know, twice a week, maybe for 15 minutes, we're going to have that session where we talk about how we feel and why we feel it mm. and what to do about it. And it turns out that kids love these uh, kinds of classes. Really? because it's about the things that matter to them the most, what they're feeling and getting along with other kids. Yeah, wow. And, uh, you know, it helps them. Mm. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you another story from uh, 
a class like that. These are three, three 11 year olds or 12 year old boys, junior high, they're going to gym. And one of the kids is a little overweight and uh, the kids behind him are the two boys are very kind of muscular, good at athletics, jocks, we would call them. And one of the jocks says to the paunchy kid, oh, he says in a sarcastic tone of voice, you're going to go play soccer. And then the paunchy kid stops, takes a deep breath as though he's getting ready for a fight because in this junior high, that could easily start a fist fight. Turns to the other kid and says, yeah, I'm going to try to play soccer, but I'm not very good at it. I'm I'm good at art. Show me anything. I can draw it really well. You, you are so good at soccer. Someday I'd like to be as good as you are. That mm. that the kid who had just put him down comes over, puts his arm around him, says, oh, come on, I'll show you a thing or two. Mm. That was like alchemy. <laughs> just changed yeah. the chemistry in the moment. Mm. But they, that kid learned that in school. It's called a put-up. Someone puts you down and you mm. respond wow. with a put-up. Mm. Say something positive about yourself and about the other kid. Yeah. Changes yeah. what's going on. So, yeah. you know, these are really important lessons for kids because they help them with the things that they really care about. Yeah. How they're doing with other kids. Mm. It reminds me of another story you told in, in the book about getting on a bus, I guess, in Manhattan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You tell that story. That's so well, yeah, there's an interesting follow up to that story. Oh, really? Wrote it. Yeah, I'll tell you. So, I started the book, Emotional Intelligence, with something that happened to me on a very hot, humid day in August in Manhattan. It's the kind of day when everybody's kind of on edge and like, don't touch me, don't talk to me. You have this little invisible bubble around you. I was waiting for a bus. The bus pulls up and the driver says to me, and he really says to me in a way that's very present, very warm. He says, how's your day going? Like he really cared. I was a little shocked. You know, this doesn't happen much in Manhattan. I sat down. I realized this bus driver is carrying on a conversation with everyone on the bus. Oh, you're looking for a suit, are you? There's a great sale in this department store on the right. You should check it out. And You know, there's a great exhibit in this museum on the left, Patisse. It's a really wonderful show. And, oh, the Cineplex. I know the one in Cinema 4 got a good review. I just saw the one in Cinema 6. And I think it's great. Check it out. On and on. People get off that bus. They, he'd say, like he really meant it. I hope the rest of your day is really wonderful. Mm. So that guy was spreading good feeling. He's like a urban bodhisattva, you know. Yeah. But I found out later that he uh, was the only bus driver who worked for the city of New York that when he retired, they gave a party for him because he had so many fans. Wow. He got 3,000 letters of commendation, more than 3,000, and not one, uh, uh, you know, problem letter. The guy, uh, he was a black guy, African-American. He was a pastor of a church in Long Island. And he felt that his passengers on the bus were part of his flock. So he was tending to his flock. And it really made a difference. You could feel it on the bus. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Extraordinary. We need, more, we need yeah. more people like that guy. Say yeah. the very least. My God. Oh. Hmm, well, that's such a great story, Dan. Um, another uh, a chapter, it's called Passion Slaves, and it starts to get into stuff that connects with me quite personally and everybody I know, but I'm taking it personal. Uh, you know, being able to withstand the emotional storms that the buffeting of fortune brings rather than being a slave to these passions, which is, again points to if you don't want to be then you do need to do some practice around <laughs> that right um care and intelligence in conducting one's life and there, i didn't know this word ancient greek word for it was sophrosine sophrosine can you even pronounce that? It's really okay. No, actually, I can't. I can write it. <laughs> uh, care and intelligence in conducting one's life. A tempered balance and wisdom. And, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the value and significance of that, of course, is very transparent. Well, what it tells us is that the human nervous system has not changed in design in at least two or 3,000 years. Because the Greeks were contending with it too. And one of the classic virtues 
uh, which you just described, was being able to manage your emotions, your turbulent emotions. And I think it's still true today because the Lord knows we've got them, they're part of life. But the question is, do they throw us off? Do they just, you know, ruin our day? Do they ruin what we say and do with other people? Mm. Uh, and if they do, then what can we do about them? And that's, mm. that's what uh, that part of the book is about, is how we can manage our disruptive and disturbing emotions better. I once uh, put together a dialogue with the Dalai Lama on destructive emotions. He chose the mm. word destructive. And um, it was interesting. We brought some Western scientists to talk to him. And he said, you know, the Western criterion for destructive was there are no emotions that in themselves are destructive. But when they become harmful to yourself or other people, then they're destructive. But the Dalai Lama said, well, we have a slightly different standard. We say emotions are destructive when they bias your perception or disturb your equilibrium. <laughs> which is a much higher bar, yeah. much more subtle way of talking mm. about it. But at any rate, uh, it's kind of that Eastern standard that influenced my thinking, uh, because self-awareness is clearly a part of any kind of meditation. But then how you use that information about yourself to manage your inner life is the next step. It's self-management. Uh, and I think that's absolutely crucial. And of course, the West has many methods for it, psychotherapy being an obvious one. And But it turns out meditation, Eastern methods, uh, also are a huge help with that. And putting it together like Tara did in her book, Emotional Alchemy, turns out to be even more powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um I actually think of uh, someone who you're close to, and I know as well, Mark Epstein, who does wonderful work just in that area. Right. Yeah. 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 So Mark Epstein, when Richie and I were at Harvard, Mark was a student of mine at Harvard. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Little known fact. And he was very interested in uh, uh, Eastern models of well-being. Mm. He did his um, senior honors thesis on that. Hmm. And I, I was his advisor because no one else in the Harvard faculty wanted to touch it or knew anything about it. Um, and Mark has gone on to write wonderful books, Thoughts yeah. Without Thinker, yeah. uh, many, many books integrating uh, an Eastern approach with, uh, you know, Western psychotherapy. Yeah. Quite brilliant. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, very much so. I've done uh, a couple of we've done a couple of podcasts and so on. Oh, have you? Uh, uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, and at, at one of them, maybe it was the last one. I think it was the last one we did, which was a year ago or something. I said, "All right, now listen, Mark. I mean, because we started to get into stuff that was actually personally bringing to light some important things for me." I, I said, "I said, well, okay, Mark." All right, let let's let's continue this off the podcast. How about that? <laughs> and of course, I was uh, you know nowhere near uh, New York City, and he said, "Nope, don't do Skype." Sorry, <laughs> that was the end of that. <laughs> now I think it's all he does for therapy because he can't yeah, well, see people. Yeah, well, that was before the pandemic. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Oh, I got to call him back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, right. Basically, the looking for there. free therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, when I mentioned, you know, something that's, uh, I guess, uh, all of uh, my mind-rolling listeners know about, which is my own uh, troubles dealing with anger, not that that's mm -hmm. unique to any of us, mm -hmm. but there's uh, this one chapter, The Anatomy of Rage, um, you know, and you give these wonderful these little examples, which you get cut off on the freeway or... You know, somebody, all of it, the immediate reactivity hmm. that happens. And, um, and as you say, contrast the sequence, these kinds of sequences to with a more charitable line of thought towards the driver who cut you off. Because usually it's, you know, yes. mm, right. mm, uh, maybe he didn't see me, or maybe he had some good reason for driving so carelessly, such as a medical emergency. 
How the hell do you get there? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So we get, you know, anger is the most seductive emotion. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, because power, you know, it, you feel self-righteous and, you know, you've got to do something. And uh, because we're so upset, what we do or say often is something we regret later uh, after the dust settles. That's the, that's the trouble with anger. and. Um, our thoughts are like glue. So you're saying, how do you, when you're angry, how can you, uh, exactly. you know, get any distance on your thoughts? And that's where practice comes in because the more you practice, the easier it becomes to, to identify the anger is just anger. The Dalai Lama has a really wonderful uh, view of anger. He says, you know, anger can be very helpful, but make it constructive anger. He says, Keep the energy, keep the focus, keep the determination, and put aside the hatred. That mm. is really interesting. And I see it these days, for example, with the social justice movement, mm. Mm. where people are very angry, or with politics, uh, where people are keeping the hatred, but it, it then throws them off in what they do. I think we can all be more effective if we could what the Dalai Lama recommends. But the more we practice, uh, the better, easier it becomes to do that. Every one of these conversations that I have with uh, wonderful people and teachers and thought leaders, it's like it completely always comes back to practice makes perfect. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so it's not just listening to or reading books or listening to talks or teachers and it's actually engaging yourself in a way that changes the habitual patterns, right? I mean, well, you know, I think all of the listening to talks and teachers and so on is very important, but it's important as a motivation. Uh, it, it's not going to change you in the same way practice does. And this is what Davidson and I found when we looked at the literature, that there's actually a dose-response relationship, as with mm. medicine. Mm. Oh. Uh, you know, up to a certain point, the more you do, the better the effect. And with meditation, uh, there doesn't seem to be an upper limit. For example, the yogis that uh, he studied, the, the yogi with the most lifetime hours of practice was at 62,000 hours. If you do a traditional Tibetan retreat, which is three years, three months, and three mm. days, mm -hmm. you get credit for 10,000 hours. So think about 62,000 hours. Mm. It means you're practicing continuously seriously uh and that turns out to be transformative at the level of the brain and also remember we were talking about ramdas and how amazingly present he managed to be and how much trust he could engender instantly these yogis are like that and they get there through practice they're wonderful beings and you feel it when you're with them uh, but you don't get that way just by listening to, uh, you know, a hundred tapes. You you get closer to that and you start the path by doing a retreat or by practicing every day some meditation and then trying to integrate it into your day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we're close to the end, but uh, God, we could do uh, two, three hours on, on this. This book is chock full. Um, but right towards the end of the book is just one thing, a phrase caught my eye, which was putting aside one's self-centered focus. Oh. Right. <laughs> That's a powerful phrase. It's a powerful yeah. phrase. And, and hard to do. Hard to do. I mean, yeah. as we, you were, we were talking before about believing in our thoughts Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Wow. And that story yeah. we tell ourselves yeah. and the habitual patterns that we kind of enjoy, totally. even if it's like that talk about rage and anger, I can see at times when I get triggered and I'm going to blame this on my dad, but I always do. Poor Dasara. <laughs> uh, I absolutely can feel the surge of energy and I feel the attachment to that energy, right. the energy right. of of uh, power, 
and so on. And so there's what you can really transparently see the, you don't want to give that up. There's a way in which as much as you're like embarrassed after, uh, you know, shouting your mouth off at somebody or doing whatever, but uh, putting aside one self-centered focus. Yeah, I remember Joshua getting angry. <laughs> I can see the pattern. See, someone yeah. is vouching for me. Thank you. Yeah. On the other hand, you know what to do now. Yeah. I'm not sure he did. Yeah, right. Can't <laughs> live with that anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, anger uh, is so powerful, uh, but we all are stars in our own movies. Yeah. And we tell, you know, and the script we follow is that self talk. Mm -hmm. that we go you know mm -hmm. from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep we're yeah. talking to ourselves yeah. christian does calls it the movie of me actually the movie yeah. of the me. movie yeah. of me yeah yeah and that. it's by disengaging from that movie a bit that every spiritual tradition says is a key step it's you know dropping your attachment to yourself uh there's there's really this is where spiritual progress starts, is by not believing that script, by not buying into it. And um, it doesn't matter actually which spiritual tradition. Ram Dass talked about it all the time, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's, it's at the heart of bhakti. It's the heart. an interesting devotion, a path of devotion means you stop focusing on yourself mm -hmm. and you focus on the object of your devotion the same with compassion you stop focusing on yourself and you focus on the needs or suffering of other people yeah. those are two powerful doorways spiritually and psychologically also but um you know I was trying to say this in a kind of uh, regular vernacular in emotional intelligence and I see you spotted <laughs> the kind of spiritual threads that run underneath or through mm -hmm. the book. So mm -hmm. I'm happy it's still around after 25 years. Mm -hmm. I've reintroduced it so people will have a more timely context. And also, I should mention, we're going to start a podcast, uh, Hanuman, my son. Yes. yes and I uh, are going to do a podcast, which is Emotional Intelligence and Beyond, mm. things that are interesting mm. now. And I hope you'll put that in the show notes too oh yeah yeah when is that going to happen day well, i think he's going to start it next month uh, oh okay November, sooner than later December. well when, when when will this air excuse me when will this air oh this this will uh, i don't quite know the people that manage this whole thing but within the next couple three weeks so it'll be good timing perfect Perfect. Yeah. yeah. And I'll but, have him send you the address. Yeah. Have him send me everything. Because uh, then uh, outside of this podcast, we, of course, will uh, will bump it up to to the audience and so on. Beautiful. It's in, you know, important. And uh, just one last thing. Sure. You're you're. You have spent a lot of time with his holiness, the Dalai Lama. And, mm. you know, which has been a huge blessing in your life. I know that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that always sticks with me, and it, 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 it was, it, I was thinking about it more than once as I was going back through emotional intelligence and that, mm -hmm. especially around the education. And it was him talking about our future is dependent and I'm not, giving the exact words he would have used or he does use on the mothers giving the kind of love and compassion to their children, mm -hmm. which will affect our future more than anything. And he's, he, he even said a little, I think once this is me, this is what happened to me, my mother, <laughs> this is why I am who I am. Yeah. Not quite like that, but, uh -huh. Yeah, just any kind of reference with him well, around that. I mean, because I yeah. think it's so important. He attributes the beginning of his uh, having such a compassionate heart to the, the compassion he experienced from his mother when he was a baby mm. and a toddler, which he remembers very well. And he sees uh, a mother's love for her child as a model for compassion. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. That's the, that's the beginning of a path because compassion can be nurtured that can be nurtured in anyone he particularly 
emphasizes educating the heart. He says that pe mm. the people of the 21st century, today's young people, will hold the future of the planet, you know, in their palm. And it's imperative that their education be one that inculcates an ethic of compassion. So they have, they care and they have concern for other people, not just for themselves. Mm, yeah. More, more and more of our bus driver friend is, as well, you said, is needed, huh? Especially. Let's go ahead. Yeah. No, especially in these times. He ended a, a talk he gave at MIT to Systems Conference. He said, when you make a decision, ask yourself these questions. Who benefits? Is it just you or a group? Just your group or everyone? Is it only for the present or also for the future? Mm. God, that's beautiful. Oh, thank you for that. Really. Thank you, Ron. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Danny. And everybody out there, all of uh, everything we've been talking about, in, in, including Tara's book, will be available through the show notes, linked up. And, uh, and of course, uh, I can't more highly recommend uh, emotional intelligence. I don't care if it's 25 years old. <laughs> it's more important now than it was then, I think. I mean, Jesus, we, we have a lack of that going on. Uh, so uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, everybody, we'll see you next week on MindRolling. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling. And then you also get, if you pop over there, uh, Danny and I have a whole group of friends from Sharon Salzberg, uh -huh. the Joseph Goldstein, the Jack Kornfield to Krishna Das yeah. and, and onward and forward uh, that you uh, can take advantage of. So we'll see you next time. Danny. Raghu, thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you.